Hello, everybody, and welcome to Art Blog Radio. Today we are speaking with it's Roberta, myself, Morgan, and we have our Art Blog film contributor Reek Bell here with us today. Hello, Reek. Hi, y'all. Hi, Reek. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited because this year is the 10th anniversary of the Philadelphia Latino Film Festival, and So we decided to watch a couple of the films that are going to be featured, and we're just going to talk to each other about it. Some of us watch the same films and some of us watch different ones. So to kick it off, Reek is going to talk about a couple of shorts that both Reek and Roberta watched. Thanks, Morgan. Yeah, so from some of what's scheduled, I watched Waitina, Soul, and Joyride of the shorts category, and also watched one of their more feature documentary, State of Texas versus Melissa. I'm going to kind of just go through the list, but I'm going to start with the one that was my favorite. All of them were really incredible films, but Joyride really struck a chord with me. Roberta, do you remember this one? Yeah, I remember it. it. It's a good one. It's very homey and sweet. My favorite was Saul. Mm. S-O-L. I thought that was knock your socks off. But I did love Joyride. I did love it. So go ahead. What what did you love in particular? A couple of different things. But Morgan, to give you context, since that wasn't the one, wasn't one of the ones that you watched. It's, I like that you, you worded it like this, a road movie. And I love road movie categories. Mm. And I just like just a genre overall. But it's a movie about these two two sisters that go to pick up their, their abuela, their grandmother, and take her on this like little mini road trip that they're not supposed to be taking her from some sort of like assisted living facility that she mm. lives at. But they kind of like take her without permission for the day to go to the Grand Canyon. And it seems, it becomes like obvious that it was like a trip that she really wanted their abuela to have happen. And they don't really know why this date was so special for her. And like the urgent need to make sure it happened, but they make it happen. <laughs> it's really sweet. It's just like this sweet intergenerational story that also, I feel like what really, like a lot of things struck out to me, but it made me think a lot about just breaking down cycles of intergenerational trauma and abuse. Because in, in the film, when they're on the way to the Grand Canyon, the abuela shares with them the reasoning of why this date was so so special to her to go on this particular day. It was her wedding anniversary, and then she kind of shares information about their grandfather of just abuse that she had survived throughout their marriage. Mm-hmm. And this day, she wanted to go and release and let go and get rid of her wedding ring. So and in that moment, too, it seemed like that's information that she hadn't shared with them ever before. And I thought that was like really powerful of, I feel like sometimes there's, especially with survivors, there's this shame, especially when it's in situations with like family members. Well, I don't want to make them look bad. I don't want to. So I was really struck that like she just was open about it in that moment and shared that with them. But it didn't like make this whole film like incredibly somber or just about trauma like it it felt like like reclaiming power reclaiming like your own agency and the little ways that we can like liberate each other in moments and doing that with our loved ones of like 
bringing them into our experiences that felt really special. But there were a lot of little things too that I noticed, but but specifically like that scene, yeah, what did you think of that that scene, Roberta? I agree with you totally. I think she starts out the story when they ask her of why this day in particular and says, well, this is the day that he proposed to me and he did it in the Grand Canyon. That's why we have to go to the Grand Canyon. And then she immediately says, and after that, he insulted me. He, you know, hit me. He went out with other women. And it's like, oh, my God, that completely diffused the sunniness of what was going on of the two girls taking grandma on a little escapade. And it was like, oh, geez, this is deeper than I thought it was going to be. I liked some of the small things, the small moments where one of the sisters calls the nursing home old lady purgatory. I thought that was really great. And the scene where they're playing bingo in the nursing home in the common room and the white tender of all the people starts announcing what the meal is. And it's like, and we're going to have chicken mole, right? And that's the wrong pronunciation of the word, isn't it? Mole. And it's, you know, a small moment, but I thought it captured a lot of the milieu. Absolutely. Yeah, that that stuck out to me. Of Like, it's interesting of like how there was little bits of like humor too, like splashed into like, like, you know, and while still kind of, it's like, it's like poking fun at this, like, you know, Western, you know, but in this, in this way that still relates to their story. But I I liked that a lot. It was gentle poking. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like those kind of things I feel like are, it's like other, you know, other Latino people pick up on that very much, you know, like other white, like all sorts of people, but specifically like those kind of like jokes uh, or little cultural kind of insight things that I appreciate that feel for the audience, you know? Yeah. I, I liked a lot about, of the, I felt like there was almost this routine of the lipstick throughout. I love the lipstick. Yeah. I love that all of, so all of them in the film, Morgan, they're wearing lipstick. I, the two sisters going to pick her up and then their grandmother uh, applying it. But even throughout the film, they like are reapplying it and specifically like the Oblela, like leaving on the way back to uh, where she lives, just like reapplying it and felt like there was a lot of like focus on that. But I loved like that they're still glamorous in this like moment and her applying that after letting go of this just felt, yeah, special and I, I I I thought that that was really nice touch as well. The scene in front of the mirror when they're still in the nursing home and the three of them are there, grandma's putting her lipstick on, but the other two are on either side. And it's like you see all three of them and they're all the same person almost. Mm. Now, when you say let go of the ring, do you mean that they released it off, off of the Grand Canyon? Yeah, like threw it into the Grand Canyon as well. What's another what's another short that you watched? Well, we watched Waitina. I, I may be pronouncing that completely wrong. But that was a short about a group of teenagers who kind of get confronted by ice and the situation that happens that then they kind of have to flee. And one of them is a dreamer. 
So his immigration status is just in jeopardy of like, not only of them all being like incarcerated and it was like a misunderstanding or, but also his immigration status. So it, it, it was kind of just them on, on the run trying to figure out like what to do. And inevitably two of them, the two girls decide to turn themselves in in hopes that he can get away from this situation. Some of that being resolved. So definitely was kind of a film about the importance of DACA. And even at the end, they had some t- info text about just how the former administration, the Trump administration, attempts to end DACA. And even though they were overruled by the Supreme Court, the Trump administration didn't accept any, any new applicants. So even within that being overruled, they still were violent and just abused their power in that position. It's wild. Films like that and also a lot of these films, but also just that and the state of Texas versus Melissa just made me, like I always think about this, but made me appreciate and remember just the importance of film as a medium to also advocate for liberation, for change, you know, basic human needs that we are all entitled to. It's another form of like activism and and organizing that like I know those things all of the time, but it was a helpful reminder for myself too as as some things in my life and the ways of like my activism have changed a lot. I'm excited for the way that film and creating things with like film can can support that as well. So yeah, so that was that was the first one I watched and I was a little like, whew, okay. All right. It's, it's, it's violent, but like, it's, I wouldn't say gore or anything like that or, but I, I I would say it's just like, I feel like we see so much about police violence, state violence in media, which is in ways that in some things, like there's been a lot of like films, especially like black films in America that focus so much on tragedy and institutional violence, institutional racism, which is important as they should. But lately, I feel like some things have just been so inundated with films about police violence that like I needed to just take a second after that. And, and yeah, but while it's, it's important, I'm glad there are feels in, in abundance right now in response to the last couple of years, especially the last year. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, replicating the trauma that you've already undergone in real life and it's like you can't get away from it yeah yeah so I would just like exercise content warning going into that that it might be triggering for some folks but definitely uh, a good end all borders film and and I thought it was really in in a different light I thought it was really interesting just some of the like the design of the film Part of it is she, white Tina, she kind of uh, becomes like a social media star from mm. being on the run. So they kind of, like some of the, the, the shots, they kind of like use like Instagram timeline and then they'll have like the, the one part of the film in the center. Like I thought some of the composition and some of the things of like new technology and integrating that into the films was, was kind of interesting and cool. And I like seeing more and more of that. Like it reminded me of like Divine's this 
French film that in the beginning, like the first couple of minutes, it's just like the girls on Snapchat, but they like using that and like even just like the way it would be on your phone and like the whole black screen and everything. I really, I like seeing that. And I think that's really fun and like useful, you know? Yeah. So. Absolutely. I do love that. I, one of the only examples I can think of is that film unfriended. It's like kind of a, a, yeah, it's a thriller and it's, it's not maybe the best, but like the experience I watched on a tiny TV in a pitch black room and the whole thing takes place on a laptop screen. And I was there, you know? Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah. That's the one. It's just the whole laptop screen. It's the guy and his daughter, right? It, it's a, like a, a friend group and they're like group chatting oh. and someone keeps coming in. There, yeah. It made me think that there's, there's this, this film that I watched not too long ago. Yes. It's called searching John Cho film, but it completely, it's just on the laptop screen. So you're seeing like, you're watching it as if you would be uh, watching through like the camera on someone's laptop. Oh man. I need to watch that. It worked really well for that. Yeah. I was surprised. But anyways. Well, so is that, was that each of the shorts? Or I'm also really excited to hear about Melissa versus the state of Texas, because I've been listening to this podcast series about a school in Texas and their marching band and a reopening during COVID. So I've kind of been in that world. Yeah, yeah, we could talk. I know, I am curious to hear a little bit of like, Roberta, you're, there was one more short that we watched and you mentioned that one being your favorite. Yeah. Mm. Hear some of your thoughts on that, what you really liked. Yeah. Just one counter sentence about Whitina. I thought it was very high schoolish mm. and it felt like a public service announcement. It was very mm. blatant in its political message. So I just thought it was not as nuanced as it could have been. It seemed helter skeltery. Anyway, the one I really liked was Sol or Sol S O L, however you pronounce that. It seemed like it was a science fiction set in 2042. There was a mother and a daughter. The daughter is maybe 10 years old, 11 years old. The mom runs a veggie lab in the house. You can't see outside. There's an allusion to how the sun never shines anymore. It's out there. You just can't see it because of the pollution. You can't go out of the house unless you wear a hazmat suit. Mm. I thought it was done. It was very claustrophobic in that respect. You're in the house and you can't see out the windows even because they're covered with opaque plastic sheeting. And when you go outside, there is episode or two where they're outside. It's dense fog, like you can't see a thing really, you know, two feet in front of you. But there seems to be some backstory of the mother having previous experience. And there was a father that's not in the picture anymore and possibly dead. And I thought this was like a treatment to take to a producer and say, let's make this into a movie. Mm. It had that, I don't want to say slickness, but completeness of thought in it. You could feel there was a whole plot in there that could, you know, that had been envisioned. The story of the daughter who couldn't wait to break out of the house and did at a certain point, spoiler alert, 
and the mother who goes chasing after her and what happens then, it felt very real. You know, a rebellious daughter and a very worried mother. I could identify with that. I think we all could. And I'd like to see this expanded into a full movie. I think it has great potential. The music was beautifully scored, you know, the swelling violins and the beating of the drums, the percussion when there's running, and it was very well done. So I liked it a lot. And it was very short. It was. I wanted more. Yeah. I agree with you. Like, I I would have loved to, I would love to see that as like a a, a full-length film. And it did feel complete, but yet there was still so much like intrigue of like what happened with this father and it seemed like there was that one scene when she was searching for her that maybe he may have been injured and she had to like leave like it seemed like there was there was almost some guilt or some more something else there like it, it had a lot more layers that in in just that short amount of time that's what I yeah. love about shorts that it's amazing what people can capture in a, a short amount of time truly mm-hmm. and then at the very very end They swing around to what could be seen as sort of a message where the mother asks the daughter, and what is your first thing that you must remember? And the daughter says, I never go out alone. And the mother says, we never go out alone. So the the thought of we are one, which I thought was a very nice moment to end on. Yeah, I noticed I had that in my notes. I really liked that. Yeah. Was it that they could not go outside because is this an apocalyptic, like the sun is too strong? The ozone layer is burned away? or It's not clear what it is, but it's pollution of some sort is going to kill you. You just have to wear your hazmat suit and can't breathe the air. Oh, okay. I think there's something, because I noticed too at the end, there was a moment when they're back inside after you know, the, the daughter gets lost outside for a little bit and she's standing next to this plant. And, you know, as they have that moment of we never go out of loan and they're leaving the room, the light above the plant changes. It mm. went, like, I had to rewind it too. Cause it, mm. but there was like very much like a focus of that. There was like nothing else in the room. They've walked out, but it's still just this shot on the plant. And then Kind of like subtly the light on the plant changes and then comes in like the end credits and it's like a very bright screen. So it made it seem like something about the sun, but even Morgan, like when they're walking around outside, it's so thick of like this fog smoke that they can't really see and we we can't see anything else but that. Oh, wow. That sounds, man, I got to watch, (laughs) got to watch that after this. (laughs) Yeah, definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, those, so those were the three shorts that we had watched. And then there was the state of Texas versus Melissa. Yeah. It's about like an hour and a half, I would say. And this documentary is just all about Melissa Lucio, who is the first Hispanic woman to be sentenced to death row and she's been on death row for I believe 13 years at this point I had that in my notes death row in Texas obviously in the title 
I mean, Texas has historically just been a, the state, I think the most responsible for the most executions in this country. But yeah, so this, this documentary is about her, about all of the corruption, the, the way that her case was completely mishandled. And there have even been several appeals. There's been neglect as far as her defense attorney not sharing information with the court. The, the assistant district attorney is, I think, actually incarcerated right now for corruption and bribery. They're, they went into that in the film. So it, it talks, it's a lot about her, her life and uh, her experience and they, her, especially her relationships with her children and what she was charged with. I don't know her specific charge, but she's incarcerated for the murder of her child. She was charged with the murder of her two-year-old child. Oh, was it a shaking baby syndrome? type of thing well no, no, no. Uh, so it's like i'm trying to remember specifically there was some sort of accident that happened the the two-year-old i believe like fell down on some steps there's some things of whether or not like a sibling may have been like abusing the child but the, the ambulance were called because the child was unresponsive and had like fallen down the steps and then shortly after, passed away in the hospital. And then the mother was kind of like picked up, interrogated for like eight and a half, nine hours, and kind of coerced into this confession. And from there, it's just been all of these people from like the coroner also just seeing bruises and being like, okay, this is just child abuse. I'm not going to investigate this any further. To the defense attorney being like, you know, this, this, oh, this information that I'm hearing from another witness that says that, yes, someone, you you know, the child did fall down the steps. He, like, made the decision to not bring her children, her other children, into court. Because I remember specifically there was this one line that, like, just really irked me that he said, which was amazing that they were able to even, like, interview some of these people that they're critiquing in the film, rightfully so, that I was glad to see that. But it it really highlight like shows just how awful the situation and these people are. Her defense attorney at the time, I there was a line specifically that he mentioned keeping the kids still long enough to be able to like, oh, the court's not gonna want to deal with that. And I feel like it's like the the something that they always talk about, like people always say about like children, oh like they're just like fidgety, oh like to dismiss them, like they're just kids, you know, but it would look bad because the court doesn't want to deal with that, which is just like bullshit. And also it, it, each of these people just made a decision that affected this woman's life. Mm. Like the coroner from the defense attorney to obviously the district attorney who had, there was, there was a lot of press because it was like five days before Melissa was arrested for the murder of the death of her child that the in that same county they had charged this man was convicted for murder but had somehow the situation was so mishandled that he just walked out of the courthouse and was gone and they couldn't find him he was like on the run so they were getting all of this negative press and then five days later this happens so, and then, yeah, and the, and later on came out the, the, this district attorney did a lot of bribery, like just corruption and just, and very much highlighted how atrocious this 
criminal justice system is in this country and especially just as far as incarceration. I mean, personally, like I'm a prison abolitionist and I don't think that they should exist. So watching this all, this films like this just fuel my fire. And I'm glad that this woman also just could use her own voice because I feel like a lot of times in documentaries and, and or even just like articles, especially, uh, it's a lot of people speaking for the person. So I'm, it was nice to hear directly from a lot of the people involved in this situation, but have the focus be on her and the way she has been like abused throughout this whole process and the like violence that continues to happen in this country. So, yeah, I just talked a lot, but <laughs> no, no, I, I'm with you. And it's very infuriating. I've been listening to this podcast you're wrong about, and they had an episode about murder and how cops have committed most of the murders. And they, they're very terrible at solving murders as well. Like oftentimes they'll be like this cold case. Oh, they'll blame it on maybe someone who is dead or yeah, like, or somebody who's already convicted. Cause it's just easier at that point, And they get to say that they've you know, put a stamp on that case that they've solved it. But this shaken baby syndrome thing, I brought it up because there was like one official who would go to all of these cases and be like, oh yeah, these symptoms are consistent with shaken baby syndrome when like we barely knew what it was. And it wasn't like what, it was like oftentimes like people having seizures or whatever else, or like old head trauma. And it's just, it's so infuriating how like people have so much agency over mm-hmm. specifically women of color, but over women who are g- caregivers who and their children get in accidents because children are stupid and dumb and <laughs> right. No, yeah, <laughs> you run to, they hurt themselves all the time. Yeah, it made me think uh, back to what you just said. Just there was one like because they have some of the footage from her interrogation, and then there's this one detective very much just trying to instigate some sort of confession that even like brings out a doll to like show how she would pat and just like, are you sure it wasn't even harder? We all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. You you might be tired, you know, like using all of this, this against her to try and push her like, Oh, you know, you're an exhausted mother. So like the similar, Oh, it must be just shaken baby syndrome. Like, so it made me just think about so much of the reproductive labor and the, the ways in which the state wants to control reproductive labor, but also like as far as, especially Texas, you know, people that can bear children, their, their reproductive rights, especially what's been going on lately, but then also use that as, as like a, a means to dismiss people and their agency and also to like further oppress, oppress them. And, Oh, yeah. I just want to say I agree with you on the state being implicated in all of this. And by the state, I mean all levels of government were against her and acting against her. But the what I took out of this movie and what moved me the most was her family and mm-hmm. how from the time she was a little girl, she had been molested by various mm-hmm. family members. So she was not protected in her own family growing up and had a pattern of disassociating from life, got married at age 14 or 16 or something extremely young, had four kids by the time she was 20. And she had, nobody knew how to deal with her. She didn't know how to deal with the world and nobody in her family 
knew how to rescue her or had the means to rescue her. And at her deepest moment, when they really needed to rally around her, her children did, but they were not allowed to testify on her behalf because the defense attorney said they wouldn't sit still. But her mother, for example, is quoted in this movie as saying that they believed she had done it. Her mother believed that she had been capable of this. Her, there was a sister quoted as saying, well, you know, we got to get on with our lives. You know, why haven't you been in touch with her? She's been in prison 13 years now. Well, we got to get on with our lives. I haven't seen her in seven years. I haven't been in touch. And it's like total abandonment by the family, except for the children. You see some of the children who have grown through the years and crying, still crying for their mom and loving their mom and and knowing that she didn't do this thing that she's accused of, but being completely powerless to do anything about it. They would have been witnesses, right? Were they there? There was one son who was at the bottom of the stairs that says he witnessed this fall of the little Mariah was her name, the two-year-old down the stairs. And yeah, so they were witnesses. Seems like that was on purpose, (laughs) keeping them out of the courtrooms. Yeah. So it was, everything was stacked against this poor woman. And the latest is that it's up to the Supreme Court to take on her case. She's exhausted all of the rest of her appeals. And unless that is, I don't know, I haven't read anything about it, but she, if they don't take her case, then it goes back to Texas and they'll set an execution date. And the Supreme Court isn't doing anything right now. They just had a case on their desk with this Snapchat thing with this teenager who like sent a Snapchat around to the school was like F cheerleading F school. Like she was upset that she didn't get into the cheerleading team. This is at the Supreme Court right now and they're arguing it out. And then they say, we can't make this type of decision. What are you good for? You're there to make decisions about these nuanced things of what is the school's jurisdiction, what is not. And you can't even make a decision. And what are they good for? It's just uh, terrible. terrible. Question, Morgan. Yeah. Question, what are they for? (laughs) Oh, man, that's that's a heavy one. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is making its way around more. When I was reading about it, I believe Hulu picked up exclusive streaming rights to it. I don't know if it's on there already. I I didn't get a chance to check before, but it will be available on that streaming service. So hopefully a lot, a lot of people will watch it. Mm. Well, I'm kicking myself for not watching it before this conversation, but you guys had great things to say about it. And I feel like I I have an understanding of it. I'm going to definitely go ahead and, and watch that one as well. Yeah. Thank you for explaining it to me. Yeah. So tell us about the Marimba movie, Morgan. Yes. Yes. So the movie that I am here today to talk about (laughs) is The Whisper of the Marimba. And I immediately knew that I wanted to review this film because I played marimba competitively through ninth grade, through my freshman year of college with Marching Man, Indoor Drumline, it was my life. I was going to go to school for that, art or English. And then I couldn't read music. I actually used to write the notes under each of the 
it would take me so long. We would get 20 minutes to learn a piece of music. I would spend 10 of it writing all the notes underneath, and then I would have 10 minutes to cram it in. So that was just a big barrier for me. I felt like it was too late for me to learn, and I couldn't sight read, and so I went to school for art. But yeah, so this, this I know, Roberta, you watched this too, but this, this is a documentary film. It's an hour and 20 minutes long, and it follows three generations of musicians in Ecuador and artists. So there's Rosa, who is the eldest woman, and then there is... Benjamin, who is kind of middle-aged, and Christina, who's also kind of, you know, younger, maybe 20s, and they have children who are learning to play the marimba. And the whole thing is about how the marimba came to Ecuador from Africa and how it is now used to preserve culture and the lack of support that they get in that in that venture. They, you know, there was a quote, UNESCO doesn't care about the marimba, and they basically deemed it immaterial. So Benjamin is quoted at one time saying that the story of how people came to Ecuador was that there was this wealthy Spanish person who capsized his boat near Ecuador, and there was a slave by the same name, Alonzo, and that he freed the slaves and that they went and, you know, came upon the indigenous people in Ecuador and kind of like colonized it. And that was a story that was told by a Spanish priest, and it was through their lens of colonization. But what he says, the true story is that folks who were, you know, enslaved in Colombia to mine gold actually escaped through the forest and got to Esmeraldas. And that's what he posits to be the true story of Esmeraldas, Ecuador, where they live. And so they say the marimba came to the American continent through our mines not materially. So they remembered the instrument and they recreated it and they used it to tell oral histories. And at various points in 1800 and 1930, it was banned in Ecuador. So they would collect on the beaches and they would uh, dance to the marimba there. And so Rosa is kind of the, the older woman. She's, she's a singer and she tells their history. She sings on the beach and she, she tells the history in song. And Benjamin kind of sees the onus of preserving this culture to be on him. He says at one point that he feels that he was born to claim his right to, I guess, this culture, to the music. And he sings these beautiful songs. I wrote some of them down. I am a soul from the year 1800, when the planet was still green and a river my entire universe. The voice of my mother was like a science to me. I carry the name Juan Manuel. I left everything behind in El Patia a downpour of black brothers. I left my family behind in tears. I went away and said I'd go back. My life passed by and I did not. I was born when slavery was abolished and still I am oppressed. And then there's a couple more lines and he says, my wounds never healed. I saw an exodus of black youth. And this is when he's going to meet Nacho, who is the man who taught him to make marimbas. And he's sick and they're worried for the culture of the marimba because it's kind of falling off. So what struck me the most was watching him. He made these marimbas. He learned how to do it from Nacho. And it was just, you know, mesmerizing. I grew up with these marimbas that were on a, a metal armature with these metal resonators. And here he is cutting logs to the correct length, planing the wood, sanding the wood, sealing the wood, and constructing it with wire. And he talks about playing the marimba and how you have to let the mallet just kind of fall. 
And that is true with marimba, you have to make your own rebound. Like if you hit a snare drum, you go like that, your arm's gonna get whiplash. So the whole thing with playing drums is you have to have control to keep your, yourself down. With marimba, you have to create the snapback that goes up. It's very unnatural, but otherwise it deadens the key. Otherwise it doesn't resonate. But I, I was thinking so much about marching band and, and the roots of the marching band with the marimba and how marching band is derived from military practices. And the whole thing of marching band is you have to play so loud. And it's just so opposite of everything that he was saying, you know, just letting it drop just so and letting the rhythm kind of evolve the way he wants. It's funny. He was making fun of the xylophone. He was like, oh, we don't want any of that. True. None of that nonsense. That's that's a Mexican sound. That's not an Ecuadorian sound. And, you know, the piercing sound of the xylophone is is critical to the marching band. But yeah, yeah, I just. I thought it was fascinating. What do you, do you want to add anything, Roberta, while I review my notes for more things to say? <laughs> sure. This is a beautiful movie. It's Drop Dead Gorgeous. Esmeraldas is a city on the ocean. And so in the background, you see the march of the oil tankers. There's an oil processing plant and pollution is a sub-theme of the whole movie because the people are sick. A lot of the children have terrible allergies and whatnot because the water is bad and the, the air is not good. But if you, you know, forget about the oil tankers in the distance, the sea is beautiful and people live very close to it, at least in, in this city. The river is also a very big player in the mountains. And so at one point, Benjamin is talking about, or I guess it's when his song, he's singing his song about the river. He actually gets in a boat on the river and you see him and it's a very low boat, but a motorboat going on this beautiful river up to a mountaintop place that looks up higher, but not too far away to find Nacho. The whole thing, you know, there are these moments of grandeur with the landscape and then moments of extreme intimacy inside housing, you know, raw, not finished floors and cement walls and things of that nature that people are living in and living well in, cooking well. So they're doing well, but it's like for a Western audience, it's something to be introduced to people in a respectful way who live in these conditions and later talk about helping poor people. You know what I mean? Because there's a level of poverty that they're living with that they don't even recognize as poverty. And yet there is a level under that that they recognize and they are helping these people. And that just grabbed me. You know, the humanity yeah. of the people in this community was very great. To speak to that, I wrote down something Christina said. She's talking about how, you know, people in power there don't care about them. They don't care about preserving their culture. They'll come in. All they care about is money. And she says, but that's what that's what led her to become creative. It led her to making clothes, to selling food, to teaching children how to do those things as well. And she said, if you have everything, you can't figure out who you are. You don't recognize your own potential because it is in that, in that space that she's created these solutions. Yeah. Another thing that Benjamin, I've, I've just loved is he was talking about 
he was tuning the marimba after, after making it. And he said, I'm tuning it the way they do in Europe, but harmony isn't everything. And he's, he says he's searching for the old sounds before music theory came and bogged everything up. I mean, some of the best musicians I know, they either learned in church or they just grew up or from their parents and they just feel it. Like they aren't talking about Iodian, Mixolydian, like they don't, they aren't talking about music theory. That's a supplemental education if you decide that you need that, but you just have a feel for the music. It reminded me also of this, this piece I learned. It was called Two Mexican Dances from Marimba. And every measure, the time signature would change because a lot of American music is just 4-4 four, four or whatever else, but there's like 5-4 and all that. The time signature would change every measure so that you lo- no longer actually have a grasp. It'll be something crazy like 15 over 9. So really the only way to learn that piece is to, by listening. And the three of them, the, the trio that's in that band, that's what they did. They listened to each other and they adapted on the spot and they got into a flow. Unlearning, he said that he was eliminating all other influences, the European influence, and he was unlearning so that he could claim his right to the marimba culture that he felt was deep in his soul. He said, again, at one point, he said, um, there's all these different types of music that start to eradicate your own culture. But when you hear your music from your culture, you feel it deep in your heart. So mm-hmm. he just has this calling where he feels that, you know, he's the person to carry this on. I thought it was interesting that Rosa, the elder woman who is the singer and a leader, her type of singing was the call and response. She says at one point, I can't sing unless there's a chorus. Mm. You know, like the interrelationship of that call and response was like what she needed. And what she was singing was very chant-like you know, repeating of the words, repeating of the words, and the chorus repeated their words and back and forth and back and forth. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful sound, a beautiful way of communicating. And it went very well with drums and there was no other accompaniment. When she's playing on the beach or at night, it's like only drums accompanying it, I believe. But the band that Benjamin leads has him on guitar. Oddly enough, he doesn't play marimba. He just makes them, but he plays the guitar and he must be the leader of the band and he writes the songs, writes the music. And he is a troubadour and his songs are in the sort of Western, I think, troubadour tradition of telling a narrated story. You know, it's not call and response. It's very melodic and three parts, you know, drummer and a guitarist and the marimba. And so it's it's been westernized, perhaps, or I, I would have liked to hear more about the interrelationship of the African and what seemed to be kind of Spanishy that was coming from, you know, the indigenous or from the Spanish influence that Benjamin seemed to have in his music. Mm-hmm. Did, I didn't watch this movie yet to the end. So I don't know, maybe that, maybe I'll get there and that will be revealed. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think what I, what I kind of got out of that was, you know, Rosa was around when marimba wasn't really, it was kind of not, it was illegal, you know? So she, she had this tradition of going and hiding and she said that sometimes the bamboo hut where they had the marimba and the dancing would be full and she would just look in through the peaks of the bamboo and there would be other people around 
And so he talks about her at one point as being the oral historian. And they also talk about the type of, you know, singing that Rosa does as being the more spiritual community singing where everybody is gathered. And then I believe what he sees his role as as is being the narrator or like the oral history keeper that is keeping it alive. So it's different because it's he's telling history while she's practicing spirituality almost. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. It was just so good. And then Christina and Jorge were the others. We didn't talk about them as much, but they were teaching dancing to, to younger kids. And they were saying, they were talking a lot about the pollution and how they felt their role was to like, you know, keep the art and culture alive through the children and keeping them out of like trouble and you know, they use the word like there is crime and they use the word drugs. So they were saying that their mission was to, to try to like give people the an alternative, which was preserving the culture through dance and through clothing making and through marimba classes, which they held. Yeah. Yeah. So that was I didn't follow my notes at all, <laughs> which is sad because I took pages of them. But Yeah. Be well, like the, the, the thing about taking notes when you're watching a movie, and you can't really do this in, in the big screen unless you have some sort of special like camera or light equipment. But if you're screening something on your computer, you can absolutely take notes. And then when you go back to your notes, you read through them and the movie comes back to you. It really does. You know, all yeah. the pictures are there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So take notes when you're watching a movie on your Netflix. <laughs> well, this has been lovely. This has been longer than we expected. So we should probably cut it off. But, oh, man, I talked to your guys' ear off about this Marimba movie. I really no, loved it. No, that was fascinating. <laughs> and that's like the one that I didn't get to see. So I was really, really interested. I'm going to check that out. Before you sign off, can we do a couple film things in Philadelphia plug? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Okay. definitely. So, yeah, going again, the Philadelphia Latino Film Festival is May 30th to June 6th. And also this summer, the Black Star Film Festival, which is also having its 10th anniversary. It's funny, both those these festivals this year are 10th anniversary. But that is happening August 4th to the 8th. I don't think anything has been released as far as information about if it's all online or some in person. But then also seeing the film journal, a part of Black Star Projects, I believe they're now, I just got an email for pre-order for their second issue. And seen as a, this is specifically a quote from their website, seen as a journal of film and visual culture focused on Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities globally, published by Black Star Projects twice each calendar year. But Mm. it looks beautiful. I missed their submissions last time, but it's an exciting thing that they're producing that I think would be great for any filmmakers or film lovers to check out. Thank you for doing that, because I should have had that in front of me and did not. So you saved the day. (laughs) All good. All good. Well, this has been really, really nice. Reek, thank you for joining us and for all of your film insight and beautiful encapsulations of those shorts and that feature like doc it was great i learned a lot (laughs) thanks for having me this was lovely yeah we'll do it again yeah 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 i would love to join you again i would love that as well that sounds great 
so you've been listening to Art Blog Radio. We've been reviewing some films from the Philadelphia Latino Film Festival, which is in its 10th anniversary. And goodbye. Thanks. Bye. Bye, everyone. <laughs>